Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of The Ghost of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find everything there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Stephen Sacularius. Are you there, Stephen? I am there. You you said it perfectly. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, you just scared the dickens out of me. How's that? Get it? Dickens? Oh, (laughs) 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 all right well i'm just that was a po joke (laughs) a po joke (laughs) actually everybody be raving about it so don't worry (laughs) (laughs) there's no there's no puns here is there no puns here Uh, i haven't seen a single one So shall we disclose that we both basically figured out that this was this was going on about like five minutes before uh, <laughs> air time? Yes, absolutely. Fortunately, I'm I'm sober. Of course, I'm always sober, but I, I'm sober and I had a little bit of lunch and I'm good to go here. So uh, well, that's good. I was sober once. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think like around three years old. Yeah. Well, you know, they talk about state dependent learning, you know, and I I used to smoke pot continually back in the day. And I used to think about that Has everything I've ever learned during the last three years. Well, when I stop, will I forget everything? You know, uh, (laughs) it sort of sort of did happen because it is a bit of a bit hazy, but uh, that's cool. You know, I used to use a technique in school where I had read something where um, if, if if I had to learn something, um, long as I was in the same state of consciousness when I was taking the test, I'd have better recall. Mm-hmm. So I would smoke weed while I was studying, and then I would smoke weed before the test. <laughs> How did it work? It worked fantastic. It actually did does it really? work. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, um, what are we talking about today? Well, let's see. I mean, there's so many different facets in my research, and one of them we could start with. I mean, I've got these these classics, literary classics that I've identified as my own past life works. And that's kind of interesting. And it's something that I like to focus on and was able to focus on last time. There's there's like three others that are famous and a whole bunch that never became famous. But just to talk about <laughs> my reincarnation research itself and where I'd like to go with that is there's gotten to be a kind of a prejudice. You may not have encountered it quite so much given the guests that you're getting, but in reincarnation research, there are people who have turned Dr. Ian Stevenson's method into a kind of religion, which he himself warned about, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, if if it's not Stevenson's method, it's not valid. And these people are quite serious about this. They do not consider any kind of reincarnation research that uses any other method. And they include in that hypnosis, but not only hypnosis, 
it's not valid if it, if it doesn't study young children and if they don't have spontaneous memories and so forth and so on. And there's certain protocols for studying. In other words, it's become an orthodoxy. Right. Well, my study comes along and it's totally flies in the face of that in a particular sense, because when I produced my documentary in another life reincarnation in America from a little independent film from oh, 1997 to 2003, when I released it, I studied all the different types of cases and all the different styles of investigation, you know, what you might call forensic where people were, one of them, I think I talked about last time, I might not have, uh, Robert Snow, who was literally a detective. He was the head of homicide investigation for the city of Indianapolis, and one of his co-workers dared him to undergo hypnosis. So he finally, just to get her off his back, he agreed. And this guy is rigorous. He's trained to be absolutely rigorous about and honest about everything that he reports. See? So he reports that he doesn't feel anything except his back hurts, you know in the chair and that goes on for half an hour at least and all of a sudden he's plunged into this 3d experience of a past life and then another one and another one like he's there walking around in it which i would give my eye teeth to experience i never experienced anything like that under hypnosis but this guy did and the third lifetime was james carroll beckwith a minor but but publicly known painter in america around 1910 or somewhere in there apparently a friend of uh, was it John Sargent? I think his name was, who's better known. And this fellow, Captain Snow, was able to find James Carroll Beckwith's diary and scrapbook. And he had beforehand, he'd written down 28 points out of 30, I think, you know, like 30 points that he could potentially prove. And he was able to prove 28 of them beyond a reasonable doubt. And he wrote me privately that later on he was able to nail the last two. So he proved everything, which are things like, he remembered that uh, some relative had died of a heart attack and he remembered certain things that happened in his marriage and certain health problems he had and blah, blah, blah. And they all checked out in this diary, which he had no possible way of ever having seen before. So I had that model in front of me, as well as Dr. Stevenson's work. See, so I wasn't just stuck on Stevenson. I, I wanted to use Captain Snow's method also and some other people that were very successful. So I combined them all, you know, um, and what I came up with was, a, it was a fluke, really, because normally any past life, first of all, if it's too far in, the his, in history, you can't find hardly anything on it. And if you find anything on it, it's already in Wikipedia, basically, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that's kind of useless. And from the proof standpoint, not from the personal standpoint. And then if there's anything recent, like the 19th century, the chances are it's available somewhere. Well, I stumbled upon this life as Matthew Franklin Whittier, this writer who had hidden himself. He remained incognito. And then on top of that, the people who uh, put together the biography and the legacy of his famous brother, John Greenleaf Whittier, had done everything they could to marginalize Matthew, you know, to remove anything that was laudable or interesting in his career. There's reasons for that, which I won't have to go into now, but the gist of it is that even the little bit that was available about him was wrong or, you know, or unfavorable. And the real information about him was so deeply buried in the historical record, partly because Matthew himself buried it, mm. that, that I could not possibly have seen it. That means that any past life memory that I had and recorded 
which I was careful to date and record everything as much, I, not as much as I wished I had. I, going back, I wished I had done more, but just about every past life memory that I wrote down, I can date either from my diary or from correspondence or some way or other, or even like the digital date on graphics or some way or other, I can date everything. And I would record all of my memories. And by memories, I mean any kind of past life impression. Could be emotional, could be recognition for a picture, could be an actual flashback where I remembered cognitive details. Mostly it was emotions, reactions, favorable, unfavorable. You know, I liked this person, I didn't like him, that kind of thing. So I recorded everything. And again, there was no possible way I could have ever seen any of this information. So that defeats what they call cryptomnesia, the false memory uh, problem okay. that skeptics always like to cite. Oh, you could have read it in a novel or you could have seen it in a movie. And now with the Internet, oh, my gosh, you could have seen it on the Internet. You know, well, none of that's relevant here. I couldn't have possibly seen any of this stuff. So now. I go back into the deep historical record and I have to identify Matthew Franklin Whittier's work because he wrote almost everything under pseudonyms. And we're talking dozens, if not hundreds, over a 50-year career. Everything's under pseudonyms with his intention being not just for fun because most people will have like one pseudonym, like Samuel Clemens was Mark Twain. Everybody knows who Mark Twain is. You know, uh, Theodore Geisel is Dr. Seuss. Everybody knows who Dr. Seuss is. Well, this wasn't for that purpose. This was to hide, you know. Um, and so he was completely hidden, and I had to prove that these different pieces were his. And that took me 11 years of painstaking, rigorous research, where I was very, very careful not to claim anything for him that I wasn't sure about. And I've got now over 2,300 of his published works, all of it's digitized, all of it's searchable, not counting some of the books. And uh, I have some pretty rigorous methods of proving that a particular pseudonym was his. That means I can go into the travelogues, I can go into essays, I can go into stories, which we talked about last time I was on the code that Matthew Franklin Whittier would embed autobiographical details and things that he would embed in his stories. And I learned how to read that code. And, uh, you know, I could verify all these memories. Not, not all of them. Some of them were just plausible, like 90 memories. I've got like 90 impressions in my book, and I go through them all in the appendix. Some of them I can flat out prove. Most of them I can prove to a certain point. You know, I can't quite clinch it, but it looks pretty darn likely. And then there's a whole bunch of them that are just plausible. But you put all of that together, and I would say that the case is proven. And I mean, I kind of drew on Dr. Stevenson's method in terms of Dr. Stevenson tried his very best to shoot down all of his, you know, all of his uh, theories or all of his conclusions. So he tried his very best to be his own skeptic and shoot everything down and to come up with any possible normal explanation he could think of. And then he defeated that explanation, you know. So as I mentioned last time, when I interviewed his successor, Dr. Jim Tucker, in 2007, mm -hmm. Dr. Tucker told me that they had one case where a little girl accurately remembered 25 first names from her past life. Well, that's enough for me. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but, <laughs> uh, you know, William James said it only takes one white crow to prove that all crows aren't black. And that applies here. If you have one case that's that strong and you can absolutely, you know, determine that that's not a hoax. You know, and that, that it was rigorously done. And John, Dr. Jim Tucker is a pediatric psychiatrist following in the footsteps of Dr. Ian Stevenson. He's credible. 
I don't think anybody's going to going to accuse him of a hoax. So when he tells me that on camera and I've got it online, you know, I think we can believe that he actually has that case and that actually happened. And if that actually happened, I think it's a done deal, you know. Well, I use Stevenson's method to the extent that I tried to shoot down everything that I came up with, but by any normal means that I could possibly think of, you know. Um, I think that people just casually looking at my study and my claims assume that, well, he couldn't have been rigorous. He had to be indulging in what they call magical thinking, but I didn't. You know? So that's, that's kind of my research in a nutshell of what it's based on and why I feel that it's credible. Wow. Well, yeah, I have no, I don't doubt your credibility at all. Um, one of the things that I really find interesting, and we talked about, you know, the plagiarism stuff that was going on at that time and um so many things that have been associated you know like i opened up with the dickens joke you know yes um, which i missed <laughs> having been having been a past life humorist who loved puns i still missed <laughs> oh well um you know like, like the whole christmas carol thing like like w w was that what year too yeah, uh, Matthew Franklin Whittier and his wife, Abby Poyan. See, Abby Poyan was the real driver behind that. Mm -hmm. She was a, a prodigy, a child prodigy in both music and in poetry. And her poems were stolen by Albert Pike. Alps, uh, your listeners may be familiar with Albert Pike. I, I won't go into that in any detail, but she was a student in his class, apparently, as I've extrapolated, in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which was right near her hometown. That was his hometown in 1830. And apparently he would go through her workbook and steal both her class assignments and her own private poetry and publish it under their common initials, AP. And I think his rationale was, if I get caught, I'll just say that I was publishing them for her. If I don't get caught, I will claim it all for myself. So he went with option B and he claimed all that work for himself and he messed with some of it, modified it, rewrote it. And he became famous for his early poetry initially. Later, he told his biographer, his biographer said, well, can you send anything more recent? And he said, well, I've never been able to write poetry again since then. So, you know, <laughs> I was just blogging. I was just doing a video blog about him this morning or, or recently. So, but she was, she was a child prodigy. She was brilliant and she was deeply spiritual. She came from an interesting background and this is what we see reflected in A Christmas Carol. She was, raised French. Her father was a Marquis. And he had, he's, his father had fled Guadeloupe during a slave uprising around like uh, 1792 or something like that, and managed to get some of his sons out. And this particular son, Joseph Poyan, wandered up and down the coast. Eventually, he settled in Haverhill, Massachusetts, East Haverhill. He married a local girl, Sally Elliott. Sally Elliott came from a Scottish background, from the Elliott clan. And uh, they had several children, nine children, but Abby was like a, a little genius. And she taught Abby the old Scottish ways, including about the fairies and palm reading and herbs and all that kind of thing, see, and mysticism. And Abby picked up really deep mysticism, hermeticism and Eastern philosophy and the ancient Greek philosophers. She knew it all, German philosophy. She, you know, she was really brilliant in this area. And uh, I've got plenty of evidence for that. So, uh, but she was raised Catholic. 
So she had this odd mixture of streams, see? One of them is this occult. I, I don't like to call it a cult because that brings up other associations, but the paranormal. She was a palm reader. She was psychic. She knew astrology, for example. See, so that's the side from her mother. From mm -hmm. her father's side, not necessarily from him, but she attended mass. See, she attended Catholic church. So she knew the saints and the Christian mystical tradition. And she was of the opinion that all will be saved say the universalist position mm -hmm. and she knew christian mysticism so she put these two things together and that's what you see in a christmas carol this is not a ghost story of christmas where there's kind of vaguely christian themes and then all the occult stuff is just fanciful that's just a ghost story that's dickens take on it that's what he dumbed it down to but that's not it was what it was originally originally it was like the movie ghost where Bruce Joel Rubin, who was a serious student of Kundalini Yoga, wrote the movie Ghost, the screenplay, as though everything was authentic. So he put authentic occultism into that movie. Everything in there, as much as he could, you know, is, is genuine. Yeah. Right? And we know that. Those of us who have studied know that. You know, we, re we see that movie and, oh, my God, this guy's got the actual stuff. See, well, he did because he was a student of Kundalini Yoga, you know. So that's what Abby was writing on her side. Matthew, on his side, provided the humor and uh, the puns, which there's quite a bit of that. The introduction to A Christmas Carol, that's Matthew. When you get into the ghosts, and uh, including Marley and then the spirits, and I think when you get into um, Bob Cratchit's family and that kind of thing, that's Abby. She wrote all of that. And when Tiny Tim adds on to his father's prayer, God bless us. God bless us, everyone. Mm -hmm. That's Abby with universalism. See, that was not, that was a radical statement back in, uh, you know, the early 1800s. Because you've got Calvinists and the, the people that believe that there's the elect and the damned and all of that. Well, she didn't believe in that. She believed that everyone would be saved. I have that in one of her poems. So that's why Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. Well, Dickens was kind of adult in religious matters. He didn't recognize how radical that was. It just sounded nice, so he left it in. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he did not have the understanding or faith in uh, spirituality or spiritualism or any of those things. He just thought of it as a ghost story. He, didn't, he couldn't possibly have written these things and then have them turn out to be accurate, you know? So what he did, and I can prove it, and the paper that I've written about this, I proved it, that what he did was take the existing manuscript that I believe was from Matthew and Abby and dumbed it down spiritually. So there's one little section. I don't, I don't have this in front of me, but there's one little section where Abby had written. It's the, I'll tell you what it is. It's the Ghost of Christmas Future where he goes into a little speech, a little spiritual speech. And uh, he says that, the, the man who has lived a, a good life, you know, uh, a spiritual life, at the end of it, he will, uh, the soul will be set free immortal. Now, that's, that's mysticism. That's mukti in, in Hinduism or liberation. Right. The soul set free immortal. You're f probably familiar with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's mukti, see? Well, he didn't like that. He went in. It just sounded too religious to him. So he changed it to... Uh, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but something like, oh, I guess the readers will have to go back in and look at it, but it's, it's definitely watered down. 
Um, it'll come to me. I'm just trying too hard to remember how he put it. But he he took that out and he put in something mamby pamby that wouldn't offend anybody. Well, it'll come to me in a minute. So the thing is that the original writer, if anybody was astute enough to write about Mukti, they never would have would have dumbed it down. They could not have done that. Okay, because mm -hmm. uh, their conscience would not have let them dumb that down. See, for the pop for the public. So only another writer, a popularist coming in behind the original writer would ever do that. Yeah, absolutely. So logically, it can't have been his original manuscript. It has to have been something that he got hold of and, and dumbed down. And there are other instances. And uh, the, the most amazing one that I found is a logical inconsistency where he see he wrote this. He revised it in six weeks. He was in a big hurry to get this thing published. He's, this is November of 1843, and he wants to get it published for the Christmas season. And he's in a huge hurry. He's doing this in his spare time, supposedly, according to the biographers. And he wants to get this done. So he didn't stop to make it really consistent. And scholars have pointed, excuse me, have pointed out some inconsistencies. But, okay, so here we have the ghost of Christmas future is taking Scrooge in spirit to the Cratchit family. But this is the Cratchit family of the future where Tiny Tim has died, presumably. So there's an empty place at the table and there's a chair with a crutch, right? right. And Bob Cratchit, for those of you who are familiar with the story, Bob Cratchit is late coming home. And one of them says, oh, for a few days, I think it is, the last few days he has tarried at the grave, okay? Now we assume that Tiny Tim must be dead and in the grave. It's the yes. only reason that, that that Bob Cratchit would be tarrying, lingering mm -hmm. at the grave, you know. So he comes home and then to compose himself, he goes upstairs to a room that is decked for Christmas and he sits beside the child. Well, this is not one of the Cratchit children. They're all accounted for. But could it be the body of Tiny Tim? That's what apparently people have assumed based on it's very difficult to find anything on this. But I found one thing where it sounded like everybody agrees that must be Tiny Tim's body. But the son that, that talked about Bob Cratchit being late said few days. That's at least three. You yeah. don't say few days when you mean two. So it's at least three days he's been stopping by the grave. Well, first of all, if Tiny Tim is either sick or lying in state at the home for three days, which you're going to start to smell. But if he has been there, why would Bob Cratchit be hanging out at the grave, avoiding going home where his rest of his family is hanging out with the corpse? That's not very nice. Sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if, if he was like a not very nice guy and the whole thing just turned him off and disgusted him and he wanted to avoid going home, but that's not who Bob Cratchit is. Right. right. So it makes no sense. So, I got a hit on it. I was looking through the, um, and maybe Abby helped me with this because she gives me flashes and I remember things. I can't tell which is which, but I'm looking at this and it looked like child was capitalized where he talks about that in his handwritten draft because you can get online and you can find a Zoom version of this handwritten draft and zoom it up really large, zoom in. So, it, and it actually is not, that was a mistake. Later on, I found it was not, but it hit me. This is the Christ child. This room decked for Christmas is their Christmas shrine. It has a crash. Catholic families are not embarrassed about worshiping at an image of the Christ. Mm -hmm. 
And in this case, this is a crash with the baby Jesus in it. And Bob Cratchit is worshiping at the crash. That's why he feels better and composed and goes back down. That's why somebody else, there's a sign that other people have been sitting there. Abby is telling us that the whole family is devout. Yes. She's telling us that they're, that they're Catholics, probably, and that they're devout, and that each person in turn has been up there praying to the Christ child. <laughs> and that Bob Cratchit, who was, at the, who was out the grave for the last several days, because Tiny Tim's body is in there, finally comes home and goes up to pray to the Christ child in the crash. And then he comes down and he's okay. But Charles Dickens dumbed all that down. He didn't want it to look Catholic. He didn't want it to look overly religious. So because he was in a hurry, he didn't try to make it logically consistent. He just wiped it out, probably took out about a page and a half, I'm guessing, or half a page anyway. You know, well, that's a smoking gun, in my opinion. Yeah. Now, I now I had this thing. It was submitted to a journal and I didn't intend for it to be submitted to the journal. I was just intending to send this to the editor for her personal perusal like everybody else. But it ended up that they thought I was submitting it to the journal. And I finally said, well, if you really want to consider it, that's fine. I didn't expect anything good to come of it. So they did. And the person that reviewed it wrote back to me and said that it was full of uh, fallacies, you know, rhetorical fallacies. And then in parentheses, because I'm so stupid, she had to explain to me what a rhetorical fallacy was. It really pissed me <laughs> off, really, you know. So I blogged about it very nicely. Um, and I, those, that journal and that person will remain nameless forevermore. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, there's some smoking guns in there. That, that's two of the strongest ones I've just related, but there's others in there. And it's real clear what Charles Dickens did. Now, the other thing I did, and then I'll shut up and let you ask questions, is I went through all the steps, connected all the dots. Could it possibly have gotten from Matthew and Abby to Dickens? And I can connect every dot plausibly. And starting what, with, How did that happen? Well, first of all, I mean, I don't know how far back to go, but Matthew and Abby wrote precursor works together and i can prove that and one of them is balls on you know spot on absolutely clearly a, a precursor if it was written first and i have some pretty strong evidence that it was written by matthew first even though it was plagiarized by somebody else so i mean that's some pretty strong evidence what i think happened is that they i know they lost their 11 month old son joseph uh to scarlet fever in August of 1838. And uh, it was a real tragedy. Matthew was, they were being shunned. They had to live in very poor conditions. Matthew was trying desperately to get him out of there. He went to Michigan to negotiate with somebody, Thomas Chandler out there. And when he came back, his son had died, you know. So they were devastated. They apparently went to Methuen, Massachusetts. Now this is kind of interesting for your paranormally inclined listeners. Uh, I had two psychic readings, two mediumistic readings way back in 2010. And the second one, way towards the end of the reading, this is Abby is trying to get something through that's really evidential to him, see, and she can't seem to get anything through to him. So finally, apparently she starts screaming in his ear, M, 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 Matthew, you know, so he's kind of deaf as a post, you know, I mean, from the point of view of other people on the other side, right? So he says, I, I hear M, 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 Matthew, Methuen, you know, and I'm like, what's that second word? You know, I, I got real excited because that's Matthew's first name, right? Out of the blue, he didn't have anything to go on. So I'm like, that's pretty exciting. 
and psychics will do that. Mediums mm-hmm. will do stuff like that. If you watch enough of them, they'll get a name, I, you know, Dorothy or D, you know, and yeah, Dorothy was, that's right. You know, well, he, he did that with my past life name. But then what was the second word? So trying not to get excited, I said, would you repeat that again, just like you said it? Well, he t- took it literally, and he literally said it again, Matthew Methuen. Well, I wrote it down, M-E-S-S-U-E-N, Methuen. But I found out that right next to Matthew and Abby's hometown of Haverhill, Massachusetts, is a place that is called Methuen, Massachusetts. And it's the only place in the country with that name. And I said, I'll bet she was trying to tell me that they lived in Methuen. This is something I didn't know. I'd never heard of Methuen. So I said, this will nail it, that that was really her, right? So long story short, I found out, in fact, for about a month or maybe two months, Max, after they lost their son, Joseph, they were in Amesbury, Mass. at that time, they went to Methuen. And apparently they went to live with his second cousin, Richard Whittier, who owned uh, a farmhouse there. That farmhouse is now the Tenney Gate House. You can go there. It also is. It also houses the Historical Society there in Methuen. I've been there. I've been upstairs. I recorded my reactions, did an audio recording of my reactions, which I'll be happy to share with you if you want to stick it in. And I had a very strong emotional hit. That was where we lived in that little bedroom while we were trying to recover. And that was where we started writing A Christmas Carol, I feel. So I've got a picture of that bedroom. That's where it started, where it all started. And the purpose of it was Abby was so distraught that Matthew was afraid she was going to die too, that either she would throw herself in the river or she would stop eating. And the only way to reach her was to appeal to her strong desire to help humanity. See, And they had been kind of toying with this idea of writing a masterwork that would, would, would help transform people because people would identify with the main character and go through the spiritual transformation process with him. This was a genre. They didn't make it up. There's other people have written this kind of transformational literature. But the idea is you identify with the character, you go through it with the character, and then you go through the spiritual conversion with him, see, vicariously. So they had been talking about this, and they had written precursors. So what they did, apparently, was to take these four or five or six or seven or eight precursor works, put them together, borrow from them, especially the one fairly heavily, and put together this work. And I think maybe it was a play that they were going to try to get performed throughout the country and at churches all through the country, you know, or maybe it was a short story and they were going to try to get it published, but they wanted to do their part to transform humanity this way. A really ambitious idea, right? right? So then she died of consumption in March of 1841, not excuse me, not too many years later. And Matthew is here with this work. And what's he going to do with it? Well, what he wants to do is to honor their plan, to honor her memory and go forward with her plan. But how to do it, you know? Well, he happens to be longtime friends with Oliver Wendell Holmes. And I've got evidence that I have proof that they were friends as of 1850, but I've got evidence that suggests they were friends way back to 1830. It's not surprising because Matthew's the little brother of John Greenleaf Whittier. He tags along. He's in the same social circle as Longfellow and Emerson and all these people whom John Greenleaf Whittier knew, being five years older. So there's no reason. And and Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote similar things. He wrote uh, uh, the autocrat at the breakfast table or something like that. Very similar stuff Matthew was doing, social satire and humor. So they would have bonded. So 
1842, when Dickens comes to America, starting out in Boston, Matthew was in Portland, but he could easily get to Boston. Um, who should be charged with one of the few people who was charged with setting up the welcome dinner for Dickens, but Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was right in there as one of the guys that was, you know, charged with, okay, let's set this thing up. It's like 150 writers are going to be invited. And he was arranging this. Well, he would certainly have met Dickens personally. Matthew, I know, was a fan of Dickens because he writes about Martin Chuzzlewit to his brother before this, that he likes Dickens. Mm -hmm. There's no way that he wouldn't have had a personal introduction to Dickens. So, you know, under the circumstances. So he would have attended that, that dinner and he would have gotten a personal introduction through Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes. So he would have been at least introduced, if not one of the young men that was around Dickens at the time in Boston. So then it's a matter of, you know, did he share the manuscript with Dickens? And it so happens is one of the first things I found in Dickens' correspondence is a mention of an acknowledgement of Matthew's letter. It's, it's not the only thing in Dickens' hand is his signature. So it's like a form letter. It was written on the tour in America in response to a letter from Matthew. So Matthew had written Dickens a letter. Now, I know Matthew. He's an excellent letter writer. I mean, that's like his right. forte. And he would have written a long philosophical letter about slavery, about the book, about writing. And all he got back from Dickens was this canned acknowledgement along with several hundred others. Okay? Mm -hmm. So he Dickens blew him off, essentially. However, when Dickens got to America, he was not doing so well at that time with uh, I think Martin Chuzzlewit. He now was writing about America, and he's kind of sarcastic about America. He'd written American notes, which pissed off a lot of Americans. And <laughs> he wasn't selling so well. He was in financial trouble. By the time we get to mid-1843, he's in financial trouble. And I think he lived a pretty lavish lifestyle, you know. So he had to act fast. So I think now I'm extrapolating, but I think he went back through the manuscripts that people had given him because all kinds of people gave him manuscripts. The historical record tells us that he destroyed the correspondence, but it doesn't say that he destroyed the manuscripts. So he's looking through this stack of manuscripts for an idea, you know, to save him from impending debt, which he was terrified of debt because his father had gone into debt when he was a child and so on. So he's feverishly looking through these and he comes across the Whittier name. And he knows that name because of John Greenleaf Whittier, who, who did not go to see Dickens at that time, by the way, but he knows the name. And he starts reading and he says, by God, this is it, a ghost story, a Christmas ghost story. That's how he perceived it. So for the next six weeks, he feverishly worked to rewrite this thing and to dumb it down because Abby's spirituality was too intense for his audience. He wanted something entertaining. So that's that's how I connect all the dots. You know, I mean, I can go in and I can show point for point that uh, that everything written in there that that Dickens didn't get his thumb into is entirely plausible for Matthew or Abby in terms of writing styles. Um, so, you know, but that story, see, that story contains real paranormal, you know, phenomena. Yes. Okay. It's got, it's got uh, earthbound spirits. It's got a detail about earthbound spirits that only under certain circumstances can they be visible to mortals. Not too many people know that or think about that. And it has karma. He says, uh, I, Marley's ghost says, I wear the chains I forged in life. Mm -hmm. It has the little detail that 
that when a spirit, a spirit has a very high rate of vibration and that it's possible by raising your own rate of vibration, by touching that being that you also could levitate. This is, this is paranormal information that most people are not really privy to unless they've studied, you know, that we're talking rates of vibration here. Dickens wouldn't have known that, you know, uh, and there's other things like that. There's, there's astral travel, you know, there's, there's going back in time and reading the Akashic records or, or reading your past life. Like basically it's a past life regression when Scrooge yeah. goes back and looks, you know, so, and, and, and these, these spirits, I think originally they were spirit guides. So you put all this stuff together and you've got somebody who was knowledgeable about the occult who wrote the original Dickens comes in. He thinks it's a ghost story. He subtitles it a ghost story of Christmas and he dumbs it down, but he leaves enough of it. It still has enough power to move the world. You know, but that's that's Abby Poyan. That's not even Matthew. That's Abby Poyan. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I, I, I've seen, I haven't ever actually read Christmas Carol that I remember, but I've seen the play uh, maybe 30 times. Right, right. And then um, I really think about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely see it being written by two different people. Yeah, Matthew did the did the funny, the jocular yeah. humor and the puns and all that. But then, mm-hmm. as soon as you get into the ghosts, and because there well, is a lot of contrast in the writing, there really is. Yeah, because Abby was a straight kind of a straight laced Victorian who was deeply spiritual. You know, I mean, she could be funny, but basically, she was the real deal, and she wrote quite seriously and very high toned. So all of those uh, soliloquies by the ghosts—that's Abby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and you're right; it's quite different. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. I never thought of it that way. It's, a, it's amazing how how much plagiarism there was going on at that time. Apparently, it was really rampant. I had no idea. But uh, as I said, I think I said last time, you know, if you've got a Lamborghini or a bunch of Lamborghinis and you go into bad neighborhoods and you have a habit of leaving them alone with the keys in and the engine running, it's not surprising it's going to get stolen. It would be weird if it didn't get stolen. You know what I'm saying? Of course mm-hmm. it's going to get stolen. Well, this was Matthew because he was so good, and Abby too. They were so good, and they see they apparently Abby in particular had this Victorian idea of the virtue of anonymity, and the danger of falling through pride if you became famous. And she warned Matthew against that. I think she, I feel I have no way of proving it, but I feel that she made him promise on her deathbed you know, to remain anonymous and to keep, to avoid fame. See, so I think he was bound under that promise his whole life. I could be wrong. At any rate, that's what he did. And uh, when you do that in, in that era, when everybody, not everybody, there were principled people who knew it was wrong, even though you could get away with it. See, that's the deal. It's one of those things that, you know, well, I can't think of a better example right now, but in war, it was normal to rape the enemy's women. Mm-hmm. But there had to be people, men that knew, uh-uh, I, 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 I'm standing before God. I have to make my make my maker, even if my commander says it's okay, it's not okay. See, I'm not going to do it. So um, it's the same thing with plagiarism. It was more or less normal and kind of, kind of, uh, you know, not really, uh, you know, it was kind of laughed at, you know. So it was okay back then. Everybody did it, you know, no big deal. But there were people who were principled enough not to do it. Matthew was one of them. Abby was one of them. And there were others. So here's what I think happened. 
Abby died in March 20, March 27 of 1841. Matthew was devastated, but then he kind of got it together in a few months in 1842, enough that in the first half of 1842, about a year later, he started sending his work, including his tributes to Abby, because he wrote several poems in tribute to her. He started sending this material to various important writers, literati, in America and also in Europe. He was starting to share his work with people, kind of like the way I'm sending my papers out to, you know, out to scholars now. So I would guess that he might have sent to 25, 30 people, who knows how many there were or more. And um, I think it was a concerted effort. Why he was trying to do that, I don't know. Maybe he was trying to make a name for himself somehow. I don't know what, what he was doing, trying to create a buzz, trying to get feedback. I don't know. But a few of them, a handful of them were disreputable and plagiarized it. You know, they, and, and those few were Edgar Allan Poe, who falsely claimed the Raven and Annabelle Lee. And I think of that just recently, the term occurred to me, this was identity theft. This is an, a 19th century identity theft, what Poe did. He stole the, the identity of the author of these poems, Lock, Stock and Barrel, and created a phony identity as the person that wrote them, explaining how he did it and everything else. He really went to extremes with it. I mean, Charles Dickens just signed it and said, mm -hmm. uh, my own and only manuscript and signed it and underlined it like five times and you know that was it you know and nobody dared question it um but these other people kind of had to create a backstory so poe wrote the philosophy of composition which is a totally bs backstory for this thing and then elizabeth barrett browning who got probably at least one or two of abby's poems and at least three or four of matthew's poems and i think they sent to her twice because I think they sent to her once in 1838 when their son Joseph was still alive. And then again in 1842, Matthew sent some tribute poems to her, you know, tributes written to Abby. And she turned around and published them in 1844 as her own and monkeyed with them, modified them enough to make it look like, you know, she had written them. And then Margaret Fuller claimed a whole bunch of work that was also Matthew's. So there were four bad apples among all of the people that Matthew worked with. But he had this really naive idea of sharing unpublished work with people, which yeah. you should never do, <laughs> you know, and, and he should have known better. This, he was naive. He was known for being naive. And that was his, his mistake, was sharing anything that hadn't been published, you know, with these folks. Wow. Um, do you think he, do you, th or, or you, are, are you upset with these people? I mean, since you are him. Are you upset with any of these people for you know, ripping I find you myself, off? Well, I, I believe, and, I, and my study backs this up, that we have all the same emotions that we had from the past life and lives. And all those emotions come through. So, yeah, I'm pissed. You know, I try to see, see, Matthew was a Christian. He was an esoteric Christian who had studied all the things. Abby taught him all these things. See? But, but he was still a Christian, and he tried very hard to turn the other cheek. But he wrote quite a few stories about revenge at the same time. See? Uh, and he had a strong tendency for revenge and here's what i think when he died he became earthbound for a while because it's just extrapolation but i'm pretty sure i'm right because he saw that the people he had been close to other than abby had all screwed him over mm -hmm. they, they were all hypocrites including his brother and he stuck around to get revenge you know so matthew did have a, a vengeance streak and i still have it 
So when I send this material to these scholars, I know why I'm doing it. The official reason I'm doing it is to try to get my work out there and gradually get people acclimatized to the idea and maybe find one or two gems out there that really will understand what I'm doing. And, you know, but there's a part of me that says, I'm going to stick it to them. (laughs) And I try, I try not to let that part get uppermost, but it is there, you know, because I'm aware of what this would mean, you know, and because it, it starts out looking like it's completely absurd. You know, I admit that it really looks crazy. You know, not not just that I think I wrote it, but the, just the very fact that these famous works by these famous authors were not really written by them is just bizarre. You know, and, and it just has to be my imagination. It has to be like one professor, a Dickens scholar wrote me, who's like way up in the Dickens world. He says, we all know that Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, you know, and I'm like, but when did that ever you know, when was that ever concrete? You know, how many things have we all known that didn't turn out to be correct, you know? So that was the end of his communication with me. But if this is understood to be real, and I was blogging about this this morning, what's the effects going to be? Every PhD thesis or dissertation that's ever been written about Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol is going to be fatally flawed. Every book that's ever been published by however uh, celebrated a scholar is going to be dead wrong, fatally flawed. Every class that's ever been taught about a Christmas carol is going to be fatally flawed. You know, every homework assignment company that has all of these uh, explanations about a Christmas carol are going to be fatally flawed. The Hollywood movie about Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. you know, and how he wrote The Raven is is trash now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except it's pure fantasy, but it, it has no historical basis whatsoever. Can you imagine the havoc this is going to wreak, you know, if it's, if it's ever taken seriously? And I'm aware of that. And there's a part of me that feels sorry for them. There's a part of me that feels a little bit concerned for myself. There's a part of me that realizes just how hard this is going to be to get out there in the mainstream. Uh-huh. And there's a part of me that's kind of enjoying it. Now, <laughs> because these, these people are not are not nice to me, mostly. They, they, they shun me or they ridicule me. That's the only two speeds, with a very few exceptions, that's the only two speeds they have. So if you've reincarnated, chances are they have reincarnated also. Good have point. you considered going out and looking for the reincarnation of the people that have ripped you off and confronting them? No, <laughs> I haven't because I have no idea. I've had no... I've never had any sense that any of those people are, are anybody that I could find or anybody I know. It's an interesting question, but to my knowledge, I have no idea. With one possible exception that Matthew, I may know who Matthew's brother is, but uh, I don't want to reveal that. Um, the, other, the ones that ripped him off, I have no idea. It's, it's a very interesting thought, you know. Um, I mean, like, what if uh, Stephen King is actually Edgar Allan Poe? That's conceivable, yeah. You know, but I don't have any particular feeling about about him, except, you know, it's kind of like it's it's eye opening to me that so many people like his work. (laughs) It's it shows me what's popular. Mm -hmm. And Edgar Allan Poe knew full well what was popular. Charles Dickens knew full well what was popular. He knew that what Abby wrote was not popular, but he could dumb it down into something that they would like. See, so. I mean, that's what Stephen King shows me is that uh, this is what gets you famous. And, and here's the thing about fame is that fame is a popularity contest. But 
but if you've studied spiritual literature, the writings of the spiritual masters, you find that they talk about the world and in kind of disparaging terms. I mean, the world is, is enveloped in ignorance. The world is ignorant, spiritually ignorant. You can't expect much better from the world. So I'm talking about the, the vast mass of people are spiritually ignorant. And that means that if you want to get famous, fame is a popularity contest, it's strictly numbers. Mm -hmm. If you want to get famous, you have to appeal to the ignorant masses, spiritually. Otherwise, you're not going to be famous. You're only going to be known by a very small group, see, right. and appreciated and understood by a very small group. So therefore, the assumption is always made that people got famous because they're really good. But that's not true. They got famous because they appeal to the ignorant masses mm -hmm. somehow they hooked them. You have to hook them someplace. You know, if it's, if it's a mystery, somebody has to have been murdered. That'll hook them. Sometimes keep, people don't become interest. famous until they're after, after they're dead. That's true. I mean, uh, there I, are, except there's exceptions and also the cream eventually rises to the top, you know, a hundred, 200, 300 years later, that happens. Yeah. That, um, that happens. So maybe it'll happen with Matthew and Abby. I don't know, especially if, you know, if, if my work ever gets out there. But but generally speaking, no. And and the, the point is that these people, if they're famous once, they may not be famous again. Just because they've been famous once doesn't mean they're going to get famous again, necessarily. They have, you have to hit it just right. You know, not only do you have to appeal to the to the masses and hook them somewhere, but you have to hook them with exactly the thing that's current, you know. And if you if you hook them like like John Greenleaf Whittier got famous with nostalgia because everybody in New England read into his poem Snowbound the childhood that they didn't have that they thought maybe everybody else had had, but they didn't have. And nobody actually had that childhood because it was a fantasy. See, but it became very popular because everybody wanted to deny the abusive childhood they had had and imagine that they'd had this one that John Greenleaf imagines which was not really very nice either <laughs> <You know? laughs> so but that doesn't wash now you know nobody's really that much into that kind of nostalgia anymore so therefore it, it's not popular anymore and if he reincarnated and started writing that kind of stuff now which is what he's good at it just wouldn't go anywhere he wouldn't get popular now interesting what would or, or what do you or whittier or you think of like the work of uh say charles bukowski i don't know him you don't know Bukowski? Uh-uh. You never in read, like, the, in, you never read like the me. post office? I think I've heard of it. But see, I, I'm kind of a hermit, you know. I mean, I really don't delve into too many things that uh, are not, I mean, in I mean, my estimation, really spiritual. So, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm because, kind of a you, you, you have to check his work out because, I mean, one, he was a, an incredible poet, hmm. very witty. He actually, when, when you talk about Whittier, like that's almost like who I picture is Bukowski. Well, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, but but I hate to display my ignorance, but there's a lot of I'm pretty ignorant on popular culture. There's a lot of things I don't uh, know. I, I, don't know if he's, I don't know if he's popular. He's not really popular though. He's okay. Well, I'll check him out. Yeah, I guess he was but, around I don't know sixties. Huh. So he's sort of a, an obscure, pretty obscure. Okay. I, well, I've heard of the post office, but I've never read it, and that's about the extent. Oh. Huh. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Well, it's not very. Pretty <laughs> 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 boring, actually. No, I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm just not familiar with. I, I don't know if it was in the '60s. I don't know. I was, I was a kid, and I my my mind was somewhere else. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't discover him until a few years ago. Right. And, and, and he's one of those cases where, too, where he really didn't become a popular until more recently. Mm-hmm. Because when you read it, it's more, it has more meaning and more spirituality now than it did at the time. Okay, okay. It. Well, I mean, the, the example of that that I think of is that when I was in high school, I graduated in 71. And when I was in high school, I was taking a music theory class. I was pretty hopeless, but I I, I effed it or something. I don't know. But anyway, I was in the music theory class and we had a teacher and he turned me on to we're we're in, you know, 70s. He turned me on to an album by a group called The Free Design. I'd never heard of them. This was an album called You Could Be Born Again. It was not Christian. This was before the, the Christians usurped that idea. And it was it's very spiritual and very ethereal. And the uh, the main driving force behind it was Chris Dedrick, a, a, a Canadian, it's a family group, and this is a Canadian composer. And he could literally take the high astral plane and, and express it in his music. He could literally bring heaven down on earth in his music. Wow. You know, I mean, and I could feel it. Not everybody could feel it. I played it for a friend of mine who really wasn't very sensitive. And he said, it sounds like a commercial. To him, it sounded like a commercial. To me, I was transported you know, buy it. Mm-hmm. Well, they were, they languished in obscurity for years. Now, 50 something years later, they're now getting discovered. Apparently they were discovered in Japan and now people are starting to discover them on YouTube and whatever, you know, but it took that long for people to recognize, you know, how advanced his work was at that time. So it does happen like that. Yeah. Because I, I think with some artists that they're way, way ahead of the culture. Yeah. Yeah, well, that and, was the case. And when the culture yeah. catches up, and then it's like, oh, I don't know, I guess this, we get this guy, you know? That's what I hope happens to me, because there's certainly not too many people paying attention to me now. If I can somehow preserve the work I've done, preserve Matthew and Abby's legacy beyond my own passing, because I'm 67, I think it will get rediscovered, but it has to, it has to be preserved somehow. And mm-hmm. my thought has been, I have to get popular enough to where it'll get preserved or else it won't be there, you know? So, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that one. I'm still trying to work on that, but I don't expect to be popular now, but I want to be popular enough to where I could establish a little museum or somehow or other squirrel the stuff away where it can be found. All right. So, so have you compiled all of what years work that you've been able to identify under his pseudonyms and yeah. put them together? Yeah. It's all, it's all digitized and mm-hmm. grouped in folders by publication and then by date. Is it, is it and, all public domain? Well, no, I've, I've, I've got it on my computer. I don't, no, no, I don't no. I, I mean, where his writing is public. Oh, domain. sure. Sure. I mean, it's all, so, yeah, because so, it's all, he died in 1883. So mm-hmm. anything before about 1924 or 26 or something like that is public domain. All right. So, so are you going to release it? Like when you compiled by him? It has, yeah. Have you gone back and done, you know, made any changes to his? To, well, actually, it would be to your earlier works. No, I don't. I don't revise anything of Matthew unless it was clearly a typo. You know, if 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 they clearly printed something wrong, I don't have any mm-hmm. particular compunctions about changing it. But other than that, no, I don't monkey with any of his work. It's all digitized. I don't have any plans to release right. it. Uh, a great deal of it is referenced in my eBooks. You know, I, I don't quote everything in its entirety, some poems I do, but I reference a whole bunch of work. So you can get a pretty good introduction by reading my eBooks. But as far as the database itself, you know, I hold on to that. 
uh, it's very useful in a lot of, a lot of ways. Like for example, uh, I might've mentioned this before, when Edgar Allan Poe falsely claimed the Raven, he scooped Matthew. He got it published in the newspaper that he worked for, the uh, Evening Mayor yeah. in New York. And he changed a couple little things. And one of the things he changed was where Matthew had the word sublunary, he replaced living human being with sublunary being. Well, that was one of Matthew's favorite terms. And it so happens I can go into my database and do a search on sublunary and I come up with 22 hits. So I can prove that, you know, through that database, I can prove that that was one of his favorite words. And the yeah. same thing goes with a number of other things like that, you know, and it's very convenient because uh, if I'm trying to identify something as Matthew's work, especially one of these famous things, you know, I can go in and I could say, well, that was one of Matthew's favorites and he used it X number of times. You know, it's, it's not proof by itself, mm -hmm. but it's a nice little piece of evidence. Oh, no, every, every writer, I, I believe, has their own little signature. Yeah, in, in yeah exactly. Like, like I know like even in my own writing, I, I see myself using some of the same type of phrasing a lot. Yeah. Like, like, like I'll, I'll make a statement. Like for me, one of my things is like I'll make a statement, end it with a period, and then I'll do like, however, or uh, perhaps yeah. – yeah, you know, yeah, and, sure. and, like, like and I do that all the time, not even consciously. Yeah. Well, Matthew is the same way. And I know his style, you know, inside and out at this point. And uh, I can recognize it. I recognize it in the opening to A Christmas Carol, for example, you know, and the puns <laughs> and things he uses. That's that's Matthew's typical style. And I can bring any number of works by comparison, you know, to bear on that. But that's. You know, it's suggestive. It's not enough by itself. But you put all those things together, it's a nice tool, put it that way. It's a nice tool to have in my toolbox. Mm. So so how about now? Are, are you writing anything new? No, I haven't written anything. I, I'm doing. I, I'm really into this video blog, which is seen by max 25 people and as few as, you know, seven. <laughs> you know? And uh, I like to say this took me seven hours of preparation and I had seven viewers. So each of the, each of the viewers had an hour's worth of preparation, you know, for it. But uh, I, I don't know, I've been getting into that lately. And the thought is that if somebody runs across my information and they don't have a name or a face to put it to, they just automatically supply an image of a crazy person. He's got to be crazy. And they have an image of this wild-eyed, you know, eccentric. If they get to know me in podcasts like this or, or in my video blog, it's like they get to know me personally and they realize, no, I don't think he's crazy. He's actually a pretty intelligent guy, pretty straight shooter, you know. And that is a total game changer in terms of the way they interpret the material because now, now he's probably not crazy and he's probably not an egotistical, you know, egomaniac. And he's probably not indulging in magical thinking because they've seen me, you know, in operation. So that's kind of where I'm focused right now, that and trying to kind of get the word out to people. But I haven't, I mean, I've written everything and, and so far hardly anybody's paid any attention. So that doesn't, it doesn't motivate you to write more. You know? <laughs> there's, there's one other thing I could write. I did a video blog on it, pretty extensive one recently. And that was Abby Poyan's, work being plagiarized by Albert Pike. That's another story that hasn't really been told so much in print because yeah. I've written papers on the, on the other ones. I haven't written a paper on that. It's hard to prove. It would be really, really long. And the thing is, I don't know quite how to put this. It's like I'm writing for people who respect me mm -hmm. and are interested enough to get in and read everything. 
you know, but what I've actually got is people that don't respect me and aren't going to read more than a couple of pages. So you can't write, you can't convince anybody like that. You know, I don't have, I mean, even the things I shared with you about a Christmas carol, those are pretty strong little pieces of evidence, but if I'm constrained to like two or three pages and, and that's all I've got, I can't convince anybody that's already got their mind dead set against it. So I'm kind of working on the question of softening up the audience more than I am of writing more stuff for a stubbornly resistive audience, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, you know, like, like the episode that we did last time, it got a couple hundred listens. It was pretty popular. People are interested Good. in it. Good. So people are interested in this topic, and people are interested in hearing your story. Um, I don't know. I, maybe you should do more podcasts. I, well, you know, I did quite a few there for a while, and then I kind of dropped off. But uh, I'm waiting for the invitations. You know, <laughs> I kind of got to the point where I was tired of trying to spark them myself. You know, mm -hmm. because it was like like a beggar going from door to door. You know, I got kind of tired of that. And I said, here's the deal. They can come to me and ask me. And uh, there is one that I approached recently, and I don't know if they're going to go through with it or not. I won't say who that is. Uh, but I'm kind of waiting for them to ask me. You know, somebody has to realize that, that this is real. You know, the light has to go off. And, and I'm just waiting for that. I'm here. You know, <laughs> I like doing these podcasts, but I'm kind of tired of chasing them. Yeah. Um. Well, there's a lot of podcasts out there. You shouldn't have to chase too hard. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I mean, my, my information's all over the internet. You know, put my name in, you know, and I'm all over the place. So I'm easily found. So anybody looking, you know, for guests or whatever, you know, they can very easily get hold of me. You know, I've made, I've made that easy to do. Uh, but again, I'm not, I'm not chasing them anymore. I've done that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of tired of it. Interesting. Um, so what are you going to do with all the work that you've done? That's a good question because what happens, see, if I die without any of this provision being made, there is one person who can take it on for me, but what they can do with it, I don't know. They can preserve it for a while. But if I die without having broken in, you know, gotten taken seriously to where, you know, I got to a certain level to where it can be preserved and somebody can take the baton and move forward with it. Then, for example, I've got copies of the Raven. I got two original copies of the Raven. They're very expensive. Those will just get sold as Edgar Allan Poe's work, not as Matthew Franklin Whittier's work. They'll get sold. Somebody will take them, put them in their library as Edgar Allan Poe's work. And uh, likewise with all the other things that I now have in my physical collection, the digitized collection will just be erased. My ebooks will be gone. It'll all disappear. My entire legacy would just disappear if I died without creating some kind of a stir to where I was taken seriously. So that's been my focus, you know, unless somebody wealthy came along and said, I promise that I will preserve this for you, then that burden would be taken off me, you know, but unless and until that happens, I have to. I have X amount of time to make a name for myself so that I can get this thing preserved. Otherwise it all goes back on eBay and, and everything, everything digital is deleted and it just be as though I never did anything. Well, don't get mad at me asking for this question. I hope you'll get mad. 
I'm sorry. Don't get mad at me for asking this next question. No, no, no. No, go for it. <laughs> Why does it matter if somebody takes you seriously or not? The work is important. Well, you know, that's a good I, question. I mean, pe- yeah. pe- not everybody took Tesla seriously. It's a good question, you know. Uh, so, I don't so, think we haven't we haven't used everything that Tesla, you know, developed. We haven't used that free energy. Yeah. You know, well, if his legacy disappeared, that would be it, you know. So, but because it was preserved, we do know that there was such a thing he discovered as free energy. Whether you know the powers that be will allow it to happen or not, right now we don't know. But at least that idea has been preserved. But in my case, even if Matthew wasn't me from a past life, their legacy is so precious, in my opinion, at this point, that it deserves to be. It deserves to be preserved That's what for I'm the saying. future. I'm sorry. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so, I feel I feel that it's inherently valuable to be preserved. And secondly, these outrages that these plagiarists accomplished, those need to be set right. And one of the reasons they need to be set right is that if, if you get online and on YouTube and you look at the way the Raven is characterized, it's characterized as a horror poem with, uh, you know, all the horrible graphics and everything that goes with it. Not everybody thinks of it that way, but basically nobody thinks of it as a grief poem. Everybody, to a man, woman, or child, thinks of it as a horror poem. And this was a poem written in sincere grief for a very beautiful, rare person. See, it's not a horror poem. It never was a horror poem. And it's being dragged through the proverbial mud now. And that's a travesty. And the same thing goes with A Christmas Carol having been supposedly written by a man who turned it into a ghost story and who is turning out to be more and more of a scoundrel. So you have a man who had a long time affair. He lied to his wife about it, basically drove her crazy with it. And then he built a partition in the middle of the house to shut her off and continued with his affair. And then he wanted to have her put, tried to have her put in an insane asylum which were not nice little air-conditioned places back then. He wanted to have his faithful wife, Catherine, put in an insane asylum, I think, to get her out of the way so he could continue his affair with impunity. This person did not write a Christmas carol. He could not possibly have written a Christmas carol. But if you think he did, suddenly you imagine that there is no truth to what Jesus taught that good fruit comes from good trees. That's a deep teaching. It's very significant. It's It sets a moral order to the universe. See, if you think that good fruit can come from bad trees, then you lose respect for the good fruit. See, now you think that there really is no such thing to morality. There really isn't anything to spirituality. Any scoundrel can fake it. That's what you're left with. You might not think through that process logically, but that's the impression you're left with. If you think that this a-hole wrote a Christmas carol, then suddenly you lose all respect for inspired literature and for spirituality and for morality. So it's going to have a very deleterious effect on the morality of the world when it comes out publicly and everybody knows that Charles Dickens tried to do this to his wife and they still think that he was the author of A Christmas Carol, it's going to have an effect. It's going to undo just about everything that A Christmas Carol has done for the last 170 years, morally, spiritually. Mm. It has to be taken away from him. 
before that happens, in my opinion. And that's just some examples. You've got Margaret Fuller, who was an egotist, and she's credited with this work, deeply spiritual, deeply insightful work that Matthew wrote for the New York Tribune and for the Dial. Uh, he wrote the F sign pieces in the Dial, and he wrote as the star for the New York Tribune, and people think that was Margaret Fuller. So now they think that a phony, an egotistical phony, could have written this deeply spiritual philosophical work see and there's a disconnect there there's a problem there you know because good fruit doesn't come from bad trees which is to say advanced philosophy deep philosophy doesn't come from philosophical phonies you know and egotists and elizabeth barrett browning she was she apparently was a, a phony from top to bottom she was a, an imitation literati you know who stole her best work she couldn't possibly have written some of these things, see? And she's the easiest one to bust. You know, the paper I wrote on her is just devastating because she's the easiest phony to expose. So it's important for that reason also, because people, and then there's the other side, once they find the real author, once they find Abby, then, they, then the spirituality of A Christmas Carol opens up like a giant lotus flower. Then they can see it then they understand the depth of the thing, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because you, as long as you think that Charles Dickens, the, the guy that loved ghost stories, the sensationalist, if you think he wrote it, you're blocked from delving into the real spiritual depth of that story. Some people have gotten around him and they just don't know how to explain the fact that Charles Dickens was the, supposedly the author, you know, but, and the Raven, all of these people that think it's a horror poem, they're, they're, they go out the window and the people that well, I, I compare that to a grief observed by C.S. Lewis, the Christian philosopher. But what happened to C.S. Lewis is he lost his wife, Joy. And before then, he thought as a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, he had a pretty good handle on why bad things happen to good people and the causes of suffering in the universe and good and bad and the God and, you know, and so on. And after he lost his wife, he had to throw all that out and start from scratch. Now it got real. You know what I'm saying? He, he, didn't know, he didn't have any idea what was going on. He was clueless. He had to start over. See, so that's what the Raven was written. That's the spirit in which the Raven was written was somebody who was in that state. See, that's what that doubting is. And people will really understand the depth of the thing when they get Edgar Allan Poe away from it. <laughs> so that's another reason this is important. But there's my own personal, you know, I want to accomplish something in life and all of that. And, you know, I'm frustrated that I can't accomplish what I feel is my life's goal in this stage of my life. And there's all of that personal part of it, too. It's, I don't think it's the main part of it. There, There is my past life emotion, as Matthew Franklin Whittier, feeling, because I'm just thinking that, you know, Matthew, when he gave A Christmas Carol, the, the manuscript to Dickens, he felt that he had really pulled one off and that he had done something that would please Abby, you know? And when it came back, he as much as said that it was it was a wonderful experience for him. He felt like Abby had come back to him when he got that manuscript, that published book, that he really had done something. But gradually, gradually, over the years, he started to doubt. And he began to see that Dickens was not the, the, the person that he seemed to be, and that he had not really treated Matthew fairly, that he had, it was like, taking candy from a baby, what Dickens had done, you know, mm. to Matthew. 
And he misrepresented himself as a spiritual philanthropist, and he wasn't. He was a selfish sensationalist who pretended to be philanthropic, I think. And Matthew gradually, I think, soured on him and realized that he'd really been had. And not only that, he turned Abby's precious manuscript over to this character. And I think he felt horrible about it toward the end of his life. You know, it would be like turning your wife over to a rapist or something, you know, thinking that he was going to protect her, you know, emotionally talking about. So that emotion is still there for me. I feel like I want to get this right because Matthew did something really stupid when he handed that thing over to Charles Dickens. Wow. Except it wouldn't be famous now. Mm -hmm. That's the interesting thing. You know, uh, the Raven wouldn't be famous if Poe hadn't done what he did. And Christmas Carol wouldn't be famous if Charles Dickens hadn't stolen it. So the fame is now there that wouldn't have been there. Can I steal it back? What will happen to the fame? What will happen to the value of, for example, an original copy of The Raven, if and when I'm able to show that, and the public accepts that it was not written by Edgar Allan Poe, what's going to happen to the value of one of those? I'm curious. You know, I, I've written, I wrote an expert who says, just, you know, as a hypothetical, you know, if it turns out that he wasn't the author, what would happen to the, to the uh, market value? And he said, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. So I don't know if I'd be able to retain the fame and get back the authorship for Matthew, you know, but I've got to get it away from these people. Wow. Um, what would, what, what do you think of Roger Corman's movie, The Raven? I'm not that familiar with that either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a dolt when it comes to, you know, popular culture. Uh, it was back. It was an old Vincent Price movie. Yeah, I don't. I'm not familiar with it. Hmm. I mean, I, again, I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. Interesting. Maybe I'll maybe I'll recognize what it is after we get off. You know, you mm -hmm. can if you want to refresh my memory uh, a little bit. Well, you know, just I, might... I mean, it's, it has like Vincent Price and Boris Karloff, and actually, it's Jack Nicholson's first role was in that movie. Hmm. Well, what was the plot? I mean, what was the gist of it? It was, it was based off the poem of of the Raven. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, vaguely. Yeah. I, I, I think I've seen it when I look on YouTube, you know, I think I've seen it, but uh, I, well, what's going to happen is that, I mean, these things might have a certain value of their own. There's been one done very recently, you know, uh, within the last few years, um, they'll have a certain entertainment value, but the fact that they're fatally flawed, as far as the premise, the actual premise of the thing is fatally flawed. It would seem to me that that's, I mean, to the extent that the appeal was that it was historical, that goes out the window. Hmm. Wow. Um, so, you know, I'm just thinking like, you need a backup plan. For your work. My, my backup plan is this one person who will take all of this stuff, you uh -huh. know, if I die. That's the only backup plan I have. I got nothing else. I don't, you know, I'm poor as a church mouse, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm able to keep it together and to, you know, everything is cross-referenced and digitized and, you know, archived. But uh, and then I keep reaching out to people. And here's my plans. I mean, I reach out to I, I wrote these papers because it was suggested to me. I write papers Well, I wrote the papers, but I knew they're not going to get accepted. And this recent experience I had with the journal shows me that I'm absolutely right. They're not going to get accepted by scholarly journals. So instead, I went into every university in the United States and the UK and some other countries and went through all the English departments, every single profile. 
and I compiled an email list. And then I emailed all those people, you know, and then the same thing that was for Dickens, the same thing for Edgar Allan Poe, emailed all those people and a few for the other ones, you know, and then I'm on Academia EDU and I, you know, it comes to people's attention through that. And then I get on YouTube and I post links to the paper, mm -hmm. you know, I've done that. I've written to experts, which are both like scholar, you know, scholarly people, English experts and experts in consciousness studies and reincarnation to try to get them interested. You know, I can't get any of them seriously interested. Uh, you know, and those are about the things that I can think of. I can't afford advertising. You know, I've got like a way to donate to me. If enough people donate, I'll take out Facebook ads, you know. What would but, Matthew do? Well, that's a good question. I mean, he was a Stoic philosopher, right? Uh, so he, yes, he was, but, but he was also clever with all his pseudonyms. Well, he did. What he did have have you to, ever considered being somebody else? No. What, what and, he did was to come up with a backup plan through that. No, I people aren't even interested in me. They wouldn't be interested in anybody else. You don't. You, you know? don't know that. But you don't yeah, know I do. that. Nah, nah. I, I'm a straight shooter. I don't try to. You know, I don't try to adopt a different identity or anything like that. Right. But I Math might have to, but, to get but a Math job. But, but Matthew would have. No, I don't think so. I mean, he, I mean, as far as the pseudonym goes, the pseudonyms, yeah. But he was trying to keep, he was trying to keep himself anonymous. I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to make myself known, which I have done, you know, uh, online. You know, if if you're interested in me and you put my name in, you're going to get me, you know, for like 10, 12 pages. Uh, but he was keeping quiet for two reasons. One was because I think Abby had made him swear to. Uh, and, uh, you know, to avoid fame, she was psychic. She probably could have seen that fame would not be good for him. And secondly, because he was doing this undercover abolitionist work, anti-slavery work with all mm -hmm. kinds of connections to the Underground Railroad, and he could not uh, go public. You know, he because there were probably probably he got death threats for a good bit of his career, I'm guessing. And he he as much as says so right. at one point. And uh, so he had to keep quiet. But so, I don't. You know. I, I have before we wrap this up. I have one last question. Yeah. Do you think that maybe he did it all on purpose? Maybe he knew these people were going to steal his work as a method of getting it out to enjoy fame without being famous. Only with Dickens he did that. I think he deliberately handed that to Dickens, knowing that Dickens was in a position to spread his and Abby's message worldwide, whereas he couldn't do it. But he didn't know that Dickens was going to dumb it down, and he didn't know that Dickens was such a scoundrel as he actually was. Had he known those two things, I think he would not have done it. He thought Dickens was an exemplary person, and he, didn't, he thought Dickens was a spiritual person, and he didn't imagine that Dickens would dumb it down as a, as a ghost story the way he did. So... I'd have to say yes on that example. The others, definitely not. He had absolutely no intention of any of the other people stealing his work. I do believe that he left these clues for posterity for somebody to, to, to set it right in the future. I don't think he, there's only one case where it looks like he was writing to his future self. So it's possible that he thought maybe he would pick this stuff up in a future life. There is one example of that. Most of the time, I think he thought it would be scholars of the future, you know, somebody would figure it out and start digging, and and he wanted to leave this breadcrumb trail for them. But uh, with the exception of Dickens, I'm quite sure he didn't deliberately leave it to be stolen by anybody. Hmm. Well, 
Is there anything I could do to help you come up with a better backup plan than what you have? Well, you're know. doing it. It it here's the thing. It has to hit the right person. You know, there could be there could be a thousand people or I mean, one of the podcasts I did is at eleven and a half, almost twelve thousand people. You know, it has to hit the one person that where the light bulb goes goes off. And all 11,612 are saying, this is pretty interesting. You know, I've watched several of these podcasts and this is one of the interesting ones. The one person, this, the 11,613th person says, oh my God, this is real. I've got to, I've got to contact this guy. You know, that's the one. So I'm going through thousands of people trying to find that one or two people where the light bulb goes off and who have some ability to help me you know, in terms of financial backing or credibility, you know, or some way to actually get this out so that before I die, there's a nice little museum dedicated to Matthew and Abby's legacy where people can come. I've kind of envisioned this thing. People can come, they can see the originals, they can see my video of them talking, you know, to them. And, uh, you know, they can read their works and study them and write papers on it and all that kind of thing. I don't think it's going to be huge, but some place where it's safe and where mm -hmm. people can come you know that's what i want to see before i uh, kick the bucket here in this lifetime and i can't do it on my own but out of thousands of people out there there might be one or two and that's what i that's why I'm, I'm fishing and I, what i think of it is like when i was a kid i used to troll in the gulf stream you know off of miami and when you're doing that kind of fishing you put on a big like a ballyhoo it's a long skinny fish and you put a big hook in it and you let the line out and you just sit there and you know, drink a Coke or whatever, because I was a kid, no beers then, you know, but I mean, I sit there and drink a Coke and relax and look at the clouds and look at the birds. And after two hours, something strikes, but it's big. If anything strikes on that, it's big. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's a sailfish or, you know, a big barracuda or something, you know? So that's the way this is. There might be no strikes for months or years, but if something bites, it could be big because this information I'm putting out there is, is so, so strong. You know, if the right person knows how to perceive it. So that's the whole strategy really is now is to find that one person, that big fish out there. Because hmm. well. I'm not going to be popular, you know, in this in this life, I don't think, you know, maybe in someday in the future. But society, I mean, this sounds egotistical, but society just isn't ready for this, you know. But there's, there's there are people who are ahead of their time out there. Some of them have finances you know some of them have some influence in the world like for example dr ian stevenson got his funding by chester carlton i believe his name is who had invented the xerox process mm -hmm. and the reason we know about dr ian stevenson and the reason they have a center you know a division at the university of virginia is because chester carlton gave them a million dollars to fund a chair for dr stevenson and then another million i think later on as when he passed on i think and the university didn't even want to accept it. They were going to turn down that million dollars, which I think is kind of interesting. But finally, they were prevailed upon to accept it. And that's why we know of Dr. Ian Stevenson and reincarnation research. Otherwise, we would never have heard of it. See? So, and his work would have been lost, probably. So, you know, I need a, I need a Chester Carl, Carlton. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. The work is good. There's nothing wrong with the work I'm doing. You know, I'm sorry that this reviewer for this journal thought that I was indulging in rhetorical fallacies. But as I told her, I said, there are no no uh, fallacies in this paper. 
rhetorical mm. fallacies, you know. But uh, it's good that I learned what rhetor rhetorical fallacies were. Because she explained it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, be some bad arguing, you know. <laughs> I, I, I told my son when he was little, he was very bright. And I told him, I said, look, never be scared by big words. Because for every big word, there's a little word that means exactly the same thing. And if you're, if you're, if you're feeling overwhelmed, all you have to do is translate it down to the little word. You know? <laughs> so there's no bad arguing in, in my paper. <laughs> so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Okay, so again, uh, the website is www.ial.goldthread.com, like a needle and thread. And there you'll see in the navigation bar on the left, articles will get you to the papers. Uh, there's one for my books. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of interesting stuff in there. That, that website, I started that in 1998. And then I trimmed it down quite a bit. I used to have a lot more information, but it's still pretty big. And there's a lot of free information. If you go on the blog, that blog goes back to 2001, I think it is, or 2002. And for, for a long time, I wrote every day. So you can imagine the amount of material that's in that blog. And then there's the video blog now. So that when you, if you go into the blog and look at the top, there's a link to the video blog. And now I've got a whole bunch of those. So a lot of material on there. Awesome. Well, keep it up. All right. Thank you, Kenny. And, and I'll post a link to your, to your work in the notes awesome. of this episode so my listeners can check it out. And, um, and it was great talking to you today. And I have one more thing to say. Mm -hmm. God bless us, everyone. Oh, <laughs> 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 well, with that, I'm going to play the outro. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.